You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. Today, in these 16 or how many ever verse, verses I'm, we're going to be looking at today, is that four ordinary men were forever changed by seeing Jesus for who he truly is and for what he had come to do. Four ordinary men seeing Jesus for who he truly was and what he had come to do. They were not looking to, they, they were changed and, and we're, we're really feeling the effects of their life transformation 2,000 years later. They were changed. They were truly changed by this encounter with Jesus. So, look with me in verse 35. If you don't have your Bible with you, um, you're out of luck because the passage isn't up there. <laughs> um, so, look, look with me at, to verse 35, if you have your Bible. If not, read it from someone else's. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. John the Baptist sees Jesus as the Lamb of God. And essentially what John had in mind was that Jesus acts as our substitute. God pours out his wrath on account of our sin. Onto, onto Jesus instead of us. That's what he has in mind when he's talking of this Lamb of God, is this substitute, this sacrifice that is of God, possessing the same deity, the same stature with God. That's what John has in mind when he, when he says, Behold the Lamb of God. Look to him. So John the Baptist sees Jesus as the Lamb of God. That's what's going on in these first three verses. However, there's something else that's significantly, that's significant that's going on that I want us to really take home, take home with us today. If you notice in verse 35 at the end of it, that he's standing with two of his disciples. So John had a following. John had certain people who were modeling his teaching. They were, they were students. That's essentially what a disciple is, is just a student of a teacher. And in this case, they were students of John. They were following him around, listening to what he had to say. They were modeling his life. John would have likely invested lots of time with these disciples. He would have spent his mornings and evenings with these disciples. And what happens a little later is that these disciples abandon him. They hear what John says about Jesus being the Lamb of God, and they follow Jesus. They abandon John. They were no longer disciples of John, but they had become disciples of Jesus. These are the first disciples of Jesus that we see in this gospel, in, in, the, in the book of John. It's the very first disciples. They leave John. It's essentially they're saying, like, John, you're cool and all. You know, you eat locusts and live in the wilderness and wear crazy clothes, but, man, you're not the Lamb of God. You're not the Lamb of God. And he happily gave his disciples away to Jesus. One writer says, John provides a genuine model of what it means to be a minister 
or servant of God. The human tendency is to make a name for ourselves and to attach our names to other people, institutions, and things so that people will remember us. To minimize oneself in order for Jesus to become the focus of our attention is the designated function of an ideal witness. All of us in this room who are Christians, who are disciples of Jesus, our lives are to be marked by making much of Jesus and happily giving everyone in our lives away to Jesus. Another writer says this about John's life. Those who have done most for Christ's cause in every part of the world have been men like John the Baptist. They have not cried, Behold me, or behold the church, or behold the ordinances, but behold the Lamb of God. If souls are to be saved, men must be pointed directly to Christ. Those of us who are Christians in this room, our lives are always to be beholding the Lamb of God and pointing others to Christ's work, to Christ's substitutionary atonement. That's just three verses. We've got a lot more to go here. (laughs) So moving on to verse 38. Jesus turned and saw them following and said said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. So these these people begin following Jesus, and Jesus immediately turns to them and and asks them, What are you seeking? Which is really odd. You'd think he would be, you know, sort of excited that these people started following him. But he gets right to the heart of the matter. He asks them, why and what are you seeking when you come to Christ? And I think he asks us all the same question as well, a similar question. What are we seeking when, we, when we're following Christ? What are we seeking after? And the appropriate answer is what the disciples gave. And we know that because in the coming verses, we're going to see what, what takes place in their life. They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Their, their attitude was, was one of humility. They said, well, we've come to, to learn from you. You're the Messiah. You're the Lamb of God. And we want to learn from you. We want to hear what you have to say. And that should be the, the mark of our lives as well as Christians. We should come to the feet of Jesus and seek to be taught by him. Moving on to verse. This evening, sorry, before we move on to verse 40. In in verse 39, he says, come and you will see. And what we're going to see is that this evening spent with Jesus forever changed these people, these men. These men who were forever changed by this evening. They left this evening with Jesus, proclaiming to their family that he was the Messiah, proclaiming to their friends that he was the Son of God. They left this evening changed. I'd like to know what exactly Jesus told these disciples. We won't know until we get to heaven, I I suppose, but but I think we have an idea of what what he told them from the coming verses. So look with me in verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. 
He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas. So Andrew leaves this evening, spending with Jesus, and immediately goes and tells his brother, Simon Peter, the Simon Peter that we, most of us who maybe have grown up in church know a lot about. Peter was an extraordinary man. Peter went after this encounter with, with Jesus and hearing from Jesus from his brother did extraordinary things for Christ. And, and, and Andrew, if we if, look with me in, in verse uh, 41, sees Jesus as the Messiah. Andrew sees Jesus as the, as the Messiah. And we know from other scripture verses um, for one example, in, in Matthew sixteen sixteen, that Peter would have confessed Jesus as being the Messiah as well. What does this Messiah terminology mean? It's important for us to remember that these uh, the first disciples of Jesus were Jewish, they were Israelites, and, and, and what they're saying is really of great significance. Messiah means anointed one. The term was applied in the Old Testament to a variety of men who were set apart and anointed to serve God and his people in a special capacity, such as a priest or a king. But specific Old Testament prophecy gave rise to the expectation that there would be a future figure, the anointed one sent by God to deliver and rule his people. And that's what Andrew and Peter had in mind, that he has arrived. He is on the scene. This guy is going to come and rescue us from our sin, and he's going to establish, they would have had in mind an earthly king, a kingdom. However, Jesus, we know further in his ministry, had in mind a kingdom that was not of this world. But nonetheless, Andrew left that evening saying, hey, Peter, he's arrived. You know that Messiah that we've heard about from from the teachings in the synagogue since we were young boys? He's here. He's here, Peter. You got to come and see for yourself. You got to come and see. And so he comes and sees and Jesus tells him, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas. Jesus changes his name. Jesus has changed his name. What's significant is that this new name that Jesus gives Simon Peter is a name that symbolizes really a rock, something that's solid, something that's stable. And if you know anything about the life of Peter, um, his life wasn't marked by, by consistency. He wasn't solid. He was all over the place. He was quick, quick to speak, quick to even deny Jesus. So Jesus, looking at Simon Peter, said, I'm going to make you into something that you don't even know. You have no idea what's going to happen to your life. And Jesus does the same thing to us. When he sees us in our sinful state, when we come to him, he has in mind what we are to become. So Andrew and Peter see Jesus as the Messiah. Moving on to verse 43. The next day. So here's a new day. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Now keep in mind here that Andrew and Peter didn't tell Jesus where Philip was. They didn't even have any mention of Philip. I think this is the first place we really see Jesus' deity made known. We're going to see it 
really flesh out more clearly in the coming verses. But right here, I think you see Jesus' deity. He goes to Galilee and he has a particular individual in mind. He's going to come after Philip. He's going to seek out Philip. And he walks up to him and says to Philip, follow me. And we know from the coming verses that that's exactly what Philip did. Now think about that for a moment. If I was to just walk up to you and you, had, you didn't know me from Adam, and, and I said, hey, follow me, <clears throat> you look at me like a madman and go on with your day. But not when Jesus comes to you. When Jesus comes to you, you must follow. And that's exactly what Philip does. And, and, and Philip, we're going to see in verse 45 here, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom the Moses, whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote about, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So we see a similar pattern here. Andrew quickly went to Peter, his brother. Philip comes to his friend Nathanael and says something very similar. He tells his friend Nathanael, Man, we found him. We found him whom, whom Moses wrote about and whom the prophets wrote about. And I want us to just look at one scripture verse uh, today. There's, there's many references to the, to the Messiah in the Old Testament, and particularly in the law and the prophets. But turn with me to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 15. Wait a second. Deuteronomy 18, I'm sorry. Deuteronomy 18. Just bear with me real quick. So this is what, what, what uh, Philip would have had in mind when he, when he said, hey, we found him whom Moses and the prophets wrote about. So here's Moses' writing in Deuteronomy chapter 18, beginning in verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, it is to him you shall listen. Going down to verse 18. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I commanded. That's what Philip had in mind. Hey, he's here. He's arrived. Moses has spoke of him. Now, now look with me to Isaiah. Flip with me to the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to look at a couple, the book of Isaiah has so many wonderful pictures of the Messiah, wonderful prophecies of, of the Old Testament uh, Messiah and the promised one. But look with me in chapter 9 here. Uh, beginning in verse, beginning in verse 2 there. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle, uh, tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Here, beginning in verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, 
and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now flip over to just Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53. Beginning in verse 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with, with grief. And as one for whom, from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And I could go on and on and on about what Philip had in mind when he came to Nathaniel. And, and told him that we had found the one who Moses and the prophets wrote about. And that's who Jesus, that's who Philip sees Jesus as. The one whom all of the Old Testament was spoken of and promised. He's arrived. And he, ex, he, he went to his, his friend Nathaniel and exclaimed this great news. Moving on to four, uh, verse 47. Jesus saw, I'm sorry, let's go to, 46 there. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. And in what Nathan, why Nathanael says this? Why does Nathanael say that nothing good can come out of Nazareth? Because he was right. He knew his Old Testament. We're going to see that a little later from his, his, what Jesus says to him when he sees him. Nathanael was a good Israelite. Nathanael knew the specific Old Testament prophecies that spoke of the Messiah. He knew that Jesus was not to be from Nazareth, but to be born in the city of God, Bethlehem. That's why, that's why Nathaniel says, nothing good can come out of Nazareth. And he was right. Jesus wasn't born there, though. Jesus didn't come from there. We see in verse 47, Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and said, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Jesus is essentially saying, a truth seeker one who knows the scriptures and, and knows the specific Old Testament promises. Look, here he is. Nathanael said to him in verse 48, How do you know me? Jesus answered him. Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. <laughs> Jesus' deity made known here exceedingly, his omniscience. Jesus was not with Nathanael under the fig tree. However, he saw him there. Jesus sees all things. Jesus didn't become less God when he came to earth. He possessed everything that he possessed in heaven. He was the God-man. And he could see and he knows all things, even while he was still here on earth. And, and we see that take place here. I'd like to know what really took place underneath this fig tree because of Nathaniel's response in verse 49. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. <laughs> Skeptic turned to believer. Doubter turned to believer. 
just by this one response, this one sentence that Jesus gave. Extraordinary. And what Nathaniel says is unlike anything else that the, the other two disciples said. Similar but different. He calls Jesus the Son of God. And many of us in this room sort of maybe are, have grown familiar with the idea of we're all sons and daughters of God. However, that's not what Nathaniel had in mind when he said Son of God. What he had when he said Son of God, what he said when he said Son of God, what he meant when he said it, was that this Son of God possesses equality with God. He is God. He's of the same nature of God. And what we're going to see a little later in the Gospel of John is that the, Jew, the Pharisees picked up stones to stone Jesus when he exclaimed that he was the Son of God. Why? They said he was blaspheming. He made himself equal with God because he was God. Jesus, or Nathaniel sees Jesus as the Son of God and the King of Israel. And, and what we're about to see is who Jesus sees himself to be. We've all seen, as so far throughout the book of John, we've seen who Jesus is. But we've yet to ask the question, why has he come? And that's what we're going to see here in the coming verses. Jesus, in verse 50, answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. You think my all-knowing power is cool? Wait till you see the resurrection. Wait till you see me bearing the wrath of God on the cross. Wait till you see the birth of the church. Wait till you see 2,000 years of church history. <laughs> greater things than these you're going to see. I think that's what Jesus had in mind when he told Nathaniel that. It's like, you have no idea what's going to happen. You have no idea what I'm going to do. And in 51, in verse 51, we're gonna, we've seen who Jesus is. That being the Son of God, the Messiah, the Promised One, the one who Moses and the prophets wrote about. Which all those things are true indeed. And Jesus confirms that in verse 51. And he said to him, now he's speaking to all the disciples present, truly, truly, well, that's odd. That kind of catches your attention. And it would have caught the early, the people in this day's attention as well. This truly, truly statement is of great significance and you need to, you need to listen up. In Greek, in the original language, truly, truly could be translated amen, amen. Essentially saying, let it be so, let it be so. Who says that before they make a statement? We typically say amen at the end of a prayer or at the end of a statement, but Jesus is saying it before. Why? Why does he say that? Jesus' use of truly, truly is a part of his consistent claim of divinity. Jesus is not merely aware of these truths. He is the one who originated them. The disciples and others listening to Jesus' words would have understood his use of these phrases in exactly that way. So when we read Jesus' words and see statements beginning with verily or truly or some other variation, we should recall the deeper meaning and we're going to see these truly, truly statements throughout the book of John. This is the first one. These claims are not just Jesus' opinion on, on the truth. 
These are ideas about which he has intimate, firsthand, personal knowledge about. And we need to listen up to what he's about to say in verse 51. He says, You will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Earlier, we read Genesis 28. And I want us to turn there because before we can really get into the meaning of this passage, we've got, it, we've got to see the allusion to Genesis 28. So look with me in Genesis 28. Beginning in verse 10 of chapter 28 of Genesis. Why did Jesus come? Jesus left or I'm sorry, Jacob left Beersheba and went towards Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth. And the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. I want us to pay attention to verse 12 here. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and and descending on it. Do you see that there? Do you see that that's Jesus? Do you see that Jesus sees himself as the one who bridges the distance between humanity and God? Jesus is the ladder. Jesus is the staircase in Genesis 28. You see that? And he, he's come to bridge the distance between humanity and God. He, uh, Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, wrote in light of these, this passage, he could see actually what Jacob saw only in a dream. When he beheld that wonderful stairway of light, which leads from earth to heaven, even the Lord Jesus Christ, who by his manhood and his Godhead bridges the distance between us and God. God came to earth. He brought the kingdom to the earth. Amazing. Amazing. My question for you today is, have you seen Jesus today as these four disciples saw him to be? If so, listen to why he came. Jesus says, I am the ladder. I came down to bring you to God. I lived the life you should have lived, died the death you should have died. Trust in me. If you do, you get in. The key to getting in is to do nothing. Jesus does not say, I'm at the top of the ladder. Climb on up. Bring your good works. Try and get up here. He doesn't say angels are ascending and descending to the Son of Man. He doesn't say if you try really hard, you can ascend. No, you can't. You can't. Who shall ascend into the presence of God? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, Psalm 24 says, which is none of us. We are all fallen. We are all sinners. Listen carefully. If you've seen Jesus as being the gospel of God, the good news of God, then your life will be forever changed and marked by a radical following of Jesus. Don't mishear me. I just told you that in order to be saved, you must do nothing, which is true. 
Jesus has done everything for you. I do believe that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. But as the life of these four disciples we've read about today and that we're going to see in the coming weeks would say, we are saved by faith alone. But the faith that saves is never alone. What we see in John chapter 1, verses 35 through 51 is that the mark of a true Christian is a life marked by a radical following of Jesus. Let me close with a couple of series, uh, serious questions to ponder that I want all of you to ponder in your hearts today. What are you seeking most in your lives? What are you seeking after? Are you looking to and trusting in Jesus alone for your salvation? Or are you looking to whatever it may be that you're looking to to be saved and to earn God's favor? Are there areas in your life where you are not following in obedience to Jesus? If so, could today be that day that you repent from those areas and give them over to Jesus? Can you make him more Lord over your life to make him Lord over your life? And lastly, for us members, let us remember our mission as, as redeeming grace. And that is to enjoy, display, and share God's redeeming grace with the world. In light of this verse, let us enjoy Jesus and all that he is and all that he, and all that he, what he has done for us. Let us enjoy that. And let us display that to a world that doesn't know how to be reconciled to God. And that's us sharing his redeeming grace with the world. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it speaks it convicts, it changes. And I pray today that everyone in this room would have seen Jesus for who he truly is, the Son of God, the Chosen One, the Messiah, the one who was prophesied about. And, and ultimately, I pray today that some would see why Jesus came. And that was to give life, and to give life abundantly, to provide a sacrifice so that we could be forgiven of our sins. And I pray today that some would see. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.